Good morning, Jubilee. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Jubilee, I'm glad to announce to you that if you are in Christ, your soul is well this morning. I thought I'd get a bigger amen than that right there. I thought, I thought that was going to set you all to running here. I said to you, I'm glad to announce to you this morning that if you are in Christ, your soul is well this morning. And as we hear from God in his word, we hear from God from that position, from a soul that is well in Christ Jesus. So I invite you to stand to your feet this morning as we look back into the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, the fifth chapter, I want to read verses one through seven. you're able, stand to your feet as we read the word of our great God. Ecclesiastes, the fifth chapter, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is hebel. But God is the one you must fear. Why don't you pray with me one more time? Oh, Father, you know what is needed in this room. You know how hearts in this room must be fed of your holy word by the power of your spirit and the person of your son. So I come this morning and I simply ask for help. Help in preaching, help in hearing, and be magnified in how we listen. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. I may have said this before, but it bears repetition. How you approach a matter matters. Our text this morning reminds us of the important matter of how we approach the triune God. But before we get into that, let's be reminded for a second about how we are to approach the book of Ecclesiastes. The letter U is our visual cue. One could, say, one could say that as we are approaching the book of Ecclesiastes, we're approaching the book of Ecclesiastes keeping you in mind. I have a slide. Can you go to the next slide that has the letter U there for me? 
There you go. I have a slide here to help us out with this visual cue to remind ourselves of where we are going. What we've been learning so far are lessons from life under the sun in this Genesis 3 cursed world. Life under the sun is difficult, as we have learned. Under the sun, there is no lasting gain from all of our toil. The hamster, the hamster wheel of monotonous activity just spins endlessly and endlessly and endlessly. There is no satisfaction. What our hearts are made for isn't found here under the sun. Under the sun, there is a time for every matter, as we heard recently, which this time for every matter helps us to understand how we are to wisely act, and yet we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Under the sun, oppression is accompanied by the tears of the oppressed. Life under the sun rides the anatomy of this letter U all the way to the baseline at the bottom. And if we're not careful, if we, if we, if we don't watch ourselves, we may find ourselves to be tempted to pitch our tent right at the bottom of that U. As we've seen what life is under the sun, we may just be tempted to stay right there at the bottom. Question is, has your heart entered into that temptation as we've studied the book of Ecclesiastes? Do you find yourself feeling down as the preacher unveils for us this tragically broken world? Do you find yourself at the bottom of the you this morning as we've been studying this book? I ask that question because of what my heart has been tempted to do during this time of Ecclesiastes. As the preacher strips away all the trappings of this world and lays it bare for what it really is, sometimes I find my heart to be sad. Not sad because of how sin has marred life under the sun, or sad because of the frustrations and the sufferings inflicted and experienced are under the sun, but sad because the preacher is crashing the party as a truth teller. He's coming in, stopping the music as it were, and telling my soul that at time loves to cling to this world, the party is all over. It makes me sad sometimes because in and of myself, if I can be honest in front of you, in and of myself secretly, I hope to find gain and satisfaction from something or someone that's under the sun. My heart wants this world to be Disneyland, where ignorance is bliss. It wants to keep on searching for something under this sun to cure the monotony experienced under the sun. And yet, the preacher is not interested in keeping us at the bottom of the U. What he does reminds me of a scene in Avengers Endgame. You knew it was coming at some point. Now, if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody in here, but let me say it like this. A certain character did something that for eight years of Marvel movies, only one character could supposedly do. And when it finally happened, the one character who witnessed it and suspected that it could happen all along said, yelled, I knew it! If you saw it, you understand what I'm talking about. 
This is what should resonate in our souls as we hear the preacher tell us what life is like under the sun. I knew it. I knew something is wrong with this world, and here is language to describe it. And once we see what has all what we've already we, what we see what we've already have known about this world, we don't continue to look at life under the sun and search for things under the sun of which it cannot offer. We continue to travel up the anatomy of the you and live life above the sun. Above the sun where we find the one who is the topic of our text this morning. Does that make sense? We don't stay at the bottom of the you, but we go above the sun as we think about the one who this text is this morning. You can take that slide down. Thank you. Did you notice the literary device of repetition when we read our text this morning? In seven verses, God is mentioned more than he is in the first four chapters of this book. The preacher has been telling us what he has observed up until this point. And now in chapter five, he moves from reflection to instruction. Our text is filled with five commandments that instruct us on the serious topic of how we are to approach the transcendent triune God. Here is our Heat Academy lesson for this morning. We are under the sun. God is above the sun. Therefore, worship accordingly. Let me say it to you again, Heat Academy lesson for this morning. We are under the sun. God is above the sun. Therefore, worship accordingly. Put another way, God's transcendence demands our worship. How we approach a matter matters. And if that's the case, how much more does it matter when we approach the living God? Isn't this what we are doing each week when we gather together as a community in the name of Jesus, right? Aren't we here to approach and gather before our God? Think about how our services go. Our call to worship is an announcement for you to come in and to worship the living God. Our singing is for the exaltation and the worship of God. In our greeting, we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. Our prayer of confession acknowledges our sin before this holy God. The declaration of pardon boasts in Christ who is provided as the provision for our forgiveness by God. Communion is the visible act of God reconciling us to himself through the death of his son. Our pastoral prayers lead us to let our requests be known to this bountiful God. And preaching, preaching continues our worship as we hear from the word of God. Our benediction speaks of a word of blessing from God over us as we leave this place and go back out into the world. Jubilee, we gather week in and week out, month in and month out, Sunday in and Sunday out. We gather each week to approach and to worship God. And yet, if we could be real in here for a second, this isn't always how we approach coming to church. Let me give you the first of five words that captures what we are commanded to do 
from this text. The first word is caution. Say caution. Look at verse number one in chapter five. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. In other words, consider your approach and exercise caution before you come before God. Now, if we were part of the preacher's original audience, what we would have in mind is the temple where God's presence dwelt among his people. Now, don't let that fly across your mental screen too fast, too quickly. While God's omnipresence explains that there's not a place in this universe where he is not present, the temple represented the place where God's presence dwelt in a very special way. We should be as shell-shocked as Solomon was at the dedication of the temple when he said this prayer, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. This great omnipresent God desired the temple in Jerusalem to be his holy habitation. In fact, he said to his people, one of the most amazing things that can be said to a people, I will dwell amongst the people of Israel and will be their God. This is, in fact, what set Israel distinctly apart from all the other nations. Moses said it best when he said, For what great nation is there that has a God so near as the Lord our God is to us? The architecture and the personnel of the temple spoke to how great God was, spoke to his greatness, and it also spoke to how he was supposed to be approached due to the dangers of his holiness. I mean, I know holiness isn't something that you should be messing around with. You can't just approach holiness any old way. We see this in the book where most people's Bible reading plan falls off the cliff, the book of Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus, we notice that it is all about right worship. The book of Leviticus taught the Israelites, how they were to approach a holy God, and it consists largely of rules and regulations. In fact, in other words, what makes Leviticus hard to read at times is that there's not that much narrative in Leviticus. But where there is narrative, we better zoom in and pay attention to what's going on here. And what we find somewhere in the middle of Leviticus, a story that should grab our attention. We read about the story of Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, who were priests. These were priests who didn't approach the Lord correctly. The story tells us that they tried to offer strange fire before the Lord, strange fire that he had not commanded. In other words, they wanted to approach the Lord as they saw fit. They wanted to approach the Lord as they wanted to. They thought that their fire was as good as the fire that the Lord had commanded them to. And we know how the story goes, or if you not, don't know, the, Israel, the, the, uh, high, the priest, Nadab and Abihu, they paid with that with their lives. They offered strange fire, and fire consumed them because of wrong approach. Book of Leviticus is there to help us understand that. As the story of the scripture progresses, so does the story of the temple. One day, Jesus showed up at the temple and declared himself to be the new temple of God. He declared himself to be the new temple where people would meet and approach and worship God. Furthermore, remember our time in Ephesians, remember what we saw there? Christ's unifying and reconciling work on the cross through his death has opened up access in one spirit 
to the Father. This is stunning. It's absolutely stunning. This access that's been given to us because of the work of Christ. When the temple was a structure, everyone didn't have access. Only the high priest was able to go behind the curtain into the Holy of the Holies, and that was only one time a year. But now, anyone who comes to Christ, anyone who comes to Christ has access to the Father. And together, all of those who come to Christ, together we're being built up as the temple in the house of God, the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. God's temple is no longer a building. God's temple now are a people. How many of y'all know that this has massive implications on how we come to worship, come to this building each week? When we gather together, we all know that there's nothing special about this building. What's special are those who gather in this building. The people of God gather in this building as the house of God to worship the triune God who dwells in our midst. So this leads me to a question, a most necessary question. How are you guarding your steps week in and week out when you come here to church? How are you guarding your steps when you come in here to gather with God's people as the dwelling place of the Lord where his presence is amongst his people. No one who comes to church can sidestep this question, right? Our hearts can be in 10,000 places when we wake up on a Sunday morning. First, we got to get out of bed. Somebody say amen. Amen. Not only do we got to get out of bed, but then we have to get dressed. And sometimes we got to get other folks dressed, right? Most of the times when we're even coming to church, we're, we're passing others by who's just chilling. Life looks like a Lionel Richie soundtrack, easy like Sunday morning. I dated myself. Some of y'all are like, who is Lionel Richie? Some of the most notorious arguments of your marriage takes place on your way to church. And that's followed by the most worthy Oscar performance of getting your face straight and plastering a smile on your face when you walk into the church. We come to church sometimes looking forward to leaving. We walk in ready to go. We unplug during certain moments of the service and we let our minds drift off to what is going to have, what we're going to eat for lunch. We come sometimes because we don't want to feel guilty for not coming. Influenced by this me culture that we live in, sometimes we come just because it will make us feel good. Sometimes we come into the house of God just to check off the to-do list and then leave unmoved because our favorite song wasn't sung or the sermon was too long or it wasn't practical enough. The places our heart, the places that our heart can be on a Sunday morning our legion. And it's a necessary reminder for all of us to guard our hearts as we come to worship. Our text gives us one way to do this by giving us a motivation. Look at verse number one again. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. 
The motivation to guard our steps is that there is one way of approaching that's better than another way to approach the presence of the Lord. The preacher gives us a profound and a wise piece of advice that we all should hear out this morning, and that is listen. Somebody say listen. The better way is to draw near with the express purposes of listening. But isn't it hard to listen? If, if, if you know yourself, isn't it hard to listen? Not even really because of external noise is it hard to listen, but most times, more often than not, it's hard to listen because of internal noise. Noise going on in your own soul as we come into the house of God. It's hard to listen at times. And yet, Listening to what God has said is our main spiritual discipline. We need someone to tell us to listen because if you're like me, we want to speak more than we want to listen. Nobody's like me in here. And yet the scriptures, the scriptures put a high premium on the importance of listening. The great commandment that was given to Israel did not say, speak, O Israel, but the great commandment that was given to Israel said, hear, O Israel. The Lord is one, the Lord our God. This is known as the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for listen. Jesus said that those who are his sheep listen to his voice. Paul told us that faith comes by hearing, which is listening. That's how faith comes. Is your faith low this morning? Don't stare at your faith. Listen to what the Scriptures tell you. Hear what the Scriptures say to you about who Christ is. James tells us to be quick to listen. In fact, the Scriptures in Revelation ends with Jesus saying eight times throughout that book, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. One way that we guard our steps as we gather before God is that we come in with ears that are perked up, ears that are ready, ears that are, 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 are prepared to listen. And how many of y'all know that the opportunity to listen abounds throughout the entire service? It's not just listening during the time of preaching, but we listen when the call to worship is given. We listen even as we sing. We listen to the prayers, and if the prayers are in line with the Word of God, we say, Amen. We most certainly listen when the Word of God is being preached. I like how one person put it, understand that whenever we go to worship, we enter the presence of a holy God who has gathered his holy people to hear his holy word. This type of listening that guards our steps helps us to understand what the sacrifice of a fool is. Israel's first king, Saul, is a prime example of this, right? He was told to do a difficult thing, a thing that was so difficult that if he did it today, it would unleash the Twitter mob on him. He was told to devote to destruction an entire people group, the Amalekites. And not only to destroy the entire people group, but to destroy all of their possessions at the same time, totally eradicate them because of their treatment of Israel during the Exodus. 
you know the story, you know that Saul partially obeyed, which we understand to mean that he fully disobeyed. He kept the king alive, of the, the Amalekite king, and he kept the best of the livestock alive. Samuel, who was the prophet at the time, heard what Saul did, so he comes and he confronts Saul, and as he's coming to Saul, Saul sees Samuel coming, and Saul says something crazy. Blessed are you be to you, blessed be to you the Lord, blessed be to you the Lord, Saul, Samuel. I performed the commandment of the Lord, Saul said. And Samuel was like, really? You, you, you perform the command, you know, you perform the command of the Lord? What, what is all of this noise that I hear? What's all the bleeping, the bleeding of the sheep? And what's, what's all of the noise that's coming from this livestock that I hear? And Saul's like, Sam, Sam, it's all good, man. It's all good. The people didn't destroy the livestock so that they can sacrifice the livestock to the Lord. That's what the people did, Sam. It's all good, man. Calm down. Samuel says, stop it. He shut Saul down. And he says, you have done evil in not obeying the voice of the Lord. Saul said, I did obey. I did do what I was supposed to do. It was the people who kept the animals to sacrifice. And it was the people who kept the animals to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. I want you to listen carefully to the words of Samuel, what he said next. He said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than to sacrifice the fat of the rams. The type of listening that is a delight to the Lord and that guards our steps in his presence is the type of listening that obeys. It's the type of listening that cries out, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in the keeping of your statutes. Another way of saying this is the type of listening that guards his or her step in the presence of the Lord is the type of listening that puts somebody in the position of being a doer of the word and not just simply a hearer only deceiving yourself. This helps us to understand the careless approach of the fool. The fool is one who offers lip service. The fool tries to draw near with his mouth, honor the Lord with his lips. But when you put a spiritual stethoscope up against his chest, you see a heart that's far from the Lord. That's the fool. The fool looks godly. He attends church so that the Lord can bless his business. She brings her sacrifice, believing it will cancel out her sins without repentance. He shows up to church just to shut his wife up. She sings the songs. He prays the prayers. He goes through, or she goes through the religious motions. He gives his money. She volunteers her time. He goes to MLG. And yet... With all of this religious activity, all of this religious toil, their heart is not in it, and their religion too under the sun is heaven. Indeed, Jubilee, it is better to listen. 
I want you to consider some diagnostic questions to ask yourself each week as we gather before the Lord in his presence among his people. Ask yourself these questions. Am I ready to listen to the voice of God through his word? Is my heart open to instruction? Are my ears attentive to the message we will hear from the Bible? What is distracting me from listening this morning? What thoughts or action items do I need to put aside while the word is being preached? Here's one. Is my body language influencing my listening? You know your body language can help you listen? If, if you just kind of sitting there like, it's going to be kind of hard to listen. But even leaning in and having body posture can affect how we listen. The first word was caution. The second word to consider is constrain. Somebody say constrain. This past week, the world commemorated the 75th anniversary of D-Day in World War II. An expression that you might be familiar with actually came out of World War II. Loose lips sinks ships. It was a phrase used to cut down on careless talk that would undermine the war effort. Soldiers, and the public for that matter, were to exercise constraint with their words. The preacher exhorts the same in the house of God. Look at verse number two. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your hearts be hasty to utter a word before God. He's speaking about prayer here. And his message is, don't be one of those ones who's liberal with your word count in your prayer before the Lord. The preacher gives us a very sound reason why we should be slow to speak and conservative with our words in prayer. He gives his audience an often needed reminder of the transcendence of God. In fact, he, he turns on location services here. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your hearts be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Heaven, earth. These two, loca these two locations actually preach to us about the categorical difference there is between the creator and his creation. As high as the heaven is above the earth is as far above as the triune God is in his nature compared to us who are on the earth. The word transcendent just actually scratches the surface of describing the distance of greatness that separates God from humanity. Transcendence. Paul said it like this in Ephesians 4, 6. He says, one God and father of us all, speaking of Christians, who is above all. God is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other. He's not part of the universe. He's not the sum of the parts of the universe. He's not the soul of the universe. He is the eternal, uncreated, absolute, self-contained, self-existent, sovereign creator by whose will and power all things exist. They depend on him for their being. He depends on none. He is transcendent. 
and before the triune God, we are in the very presence of the very definition of greatness, right? His grandeur, his grandeur would stun us into silence, and the most, most foolish thing in the world would be talkative in his presence. An example of this is clear through the etiquette of addressing royals. If you ever had the opportunity to, in the privilege of meeting Queen Elizabeth II, how many of y'all know you're not running up on Queen Elizabeth like, yo, E, what's good, Queen E? How we doing today? You're not approaching her in a cavalier fashion. In fact, tradition states that you don't even speak to the queen until you're spoken to. The glory of the royalty that the queen may have, it's a derived glory that's given to her from outside of herself. The royalty of God's glory is intrinsic to himself. God is in heaven and we are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. The preacher supports this with a proverb that's not entirely clear. It says, for dreams come with much business and a fool's voice with many words. And my best swing at this is, uh, my best swing at trying to understand what's going on here is, is to think of an experience I had when I was managing a Starbucks. During the Christmas season, I worked so much at Starbucks, put in so many hours there, that when I went home and finally went to sleep, I dreamed about working at Starbucks. Has that ever happened to you before? You work so much, you put so many hours into something that as soon as you lay your head down on a pillow and you go to sleep, you actually dream about it. I had to wake myself up in the middle of the night and say, no, I'm not dreaming about Starbucks. I got to be there in like five more hours. Just like long work hours leads to many dreams, a fool's voice is packed with many words. An old church has said it like this, knowing how widely the divine nature differs from ours, let us quietly remain within our proper limits. Let's not be fools in his presence. Charles Bridges is helpful here. He says this to help us understand. The actual number of words that we use is not the main concern but whether they be the words of the heart. This part of Ecclesiastes should remind you of what Jesus said in Matthew 6. He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Hey, I can manipulate God here if I just say a ton of words to him. That's what they think. Jesus says, don't be like them. It says, for your father, your father knows what you need before you ask him. The heart that knows and calls this transcendent God in the heaven, father, the heart that, that knows he's God in the heavens, but yet know him to be your loving, caring father, this heart can pour out words before him or can simply in his presence state two words, Father, help. He knows. The heart of a child poured out to the heart of the Father is what's required. 
The first word was caution. The second word was constrain. The third and the fourth word go together, and that's complete and control. Somebody say complete and control. While the preacher is still under the banner of worship, he switches his topics to vows. You know what a vow is, right? Have you ever gotten yourself into some trouble, some hot water, and prayed, Lord, if you get me out of this one, then I promise to live for you for the rest of my life. That's a vow. What about this? Lord, if you get me this job, I promise to never miss again, another tithe again as long as I live. Or, Lord, if you forgive me one more time, I promise I'll never do it again. This is what a vow is. It's basically a theological quid pro quo, right? You, you do this for me and I will do this for you. In the Old Testament, vows were common and instruction was given for the proper use of a vow. A good example of a vow in the Old Testament was when Hannah vowed that if the Lord would give her a son, he would turn around and get, she would turn around and give her son back to the Lord. We know the story. The Lord indeed gave Hannah a son, and Hannah in turn gave her son back to the Lord. This son was the prophet Samuel who confronted Saul that we talked about earlier. The problem with vows, though, is that it's hard to be like Hannah and follow through on our promises, especially when the crisis has passed. You promised to do something when it was hot in the kitchen, temperature is turned down, and you're like, ah, you know what? It's a different story now. Hmm. Verse 5, verse 4 and 5 gives us the preacher's instructions concerning that. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. Why? For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Why? Well, it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. In other words, complete your end of the bargain. I like how one person said it, don't play games with God. If we make a vow, if we make a promise to the Lord, we need to be sure that we do what we say and pay God what we owe. What about the word control? Look at verse number six and seven. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. The preacher is telling us to control the words that come flying out of our mouths, particularly in God's presence to him. Be careful what you promise the Lord. Loose lips not only sink ships, but loose lips lead to sin if we don't perform what we have promised. Some commentaries believe that when a vow was promised or made at the temple, there was a person in charge to make sure that that vow was paid. He was basically a debt collector. And when payment time came, this debt collector would go to collect the debt, and the person made the vow shouldn't turn around and say to him, "Ah, you know what, my bad. I made that vow by mistake. I made it by mistake. The preacher asks a question to help us to control, to keep control over our words. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? 
Jesus agrees here with the preacher when he said, let your yes simply be yes, and let your no simply be no. Anything more from this comes from evil. Jubilee, think about the vows that you have made. If you're married in here, you made vows to your spouse in the presence of the Lord. So in other words, you vowed to God, to your spouse. If you dedicated your child, you vowed to raise up that child in such a way that he or she tastes the gospel regularly out of your life. If you're a member of this church, you vowed a covenant to God that his people will be your people and you have responsibilities thereof. You promised the Lord that you would stop something or start something, complete your vow and control your tongue. First word is caution. Second word, constrain. Third and fourth word, uh, complete and control. And the fifth and final word is cultivate. Somebody say cultivate. Verse number seven. For when dreams increase and words grow many, this is or there is hevel, but God is the one you must fear. This is the commandment that grounds all the other commandments from this passage. To worship our transcendent triune God properly, we must caution our approach, constrain our words, complete our vows, control our tongues. How are we to do that? We do that by cultivating in our hearts a sense of the fear of the Lord. The preacher will have much more to say on this topic. If you remember, this is even how the book of Ecclesiastes ends. The end of this matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of a person. Charles Bridges defined the fear of God as the grand fundamental of godliness. To fear God is to recognize his might. It's to recognize his majesty. It's to acknowledge that he is in heaven and we are on earth, that he is God and we are not. The fear of the Lord is to take God more seriously when we worship with our lips and when we worship with our life. The problem is, Jubilee, is that in and of ourselves, in and of ourselves, there is no fear of God before our eyes. How do we cultivate the fear of the Lord in our hearts in the first place? How do we do it? Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Amen. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus, all of our sins and griefs to bear. For those who feel the crushing burden of failed worship in your life, the hypocrisy and the mixed motives of approaching the Lord on Sundays, the shame of broken promises and rash words and a lack of reverence in your heart, there is a Savior who first and foremost is a true worshiper par excellence. We have Jesus, who is our true worshiper, who came from above the Son to worship the Father perfectly under the Son. Isaiah tells us that the spirit of the Lord would rest upon Christ. What is this spirit like? It's the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. 
His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. In Hebrews, we see the proof of his reverence for the Father and that he listened and that he obeyed. Hebrews 10 tells us that when the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin and make the worshipers who drew near perfect, Christ came into the world. And this is what Christ said when he came. He said, this might sound familiar to you, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Right? Does that sound familiar? That's what Samuel said to Saul. The true king is here doing what Israel's first king failed to do. So sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. What was God's will for Jesus? He was to offer himself for all time. A single sacrifice of sins that was so sufficient that Jesus did what no other priest had done before. He sat down because his work was complete. For by a single offering, he was perfecting for all time those who come and who worship and who are being sanctified. One person said it like this, our imperfect worship is accepted by the Father because of the perfect worship offered by the Son. Do you hear what that means? Even our worship is forgiven in Christ. And since this is the case, Hebrews 10 goes on further to say, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, let us draw near, let's draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. In Christ, the caution that the preacher here in Ecclesiastes speaking about is transformed. We are grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And paradoxically, because of Christ, we, with confidence, we draw near to the throne of grace. We draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Our worship under the sun is not hevel because our worship is united to the perfect worship of the one who came from above the sun. If you are not a believer in here this morning, this mysterious, this mysterious worship that's mingled with, with reverent fear and intimacy can be yours. You worship whether you know it or not. And outside of Christ, your worship under the sun is a foolish sacrifice. Come to Christ. Come to him. And don't hesitate. Know yourself to be a sinner, a sinner in need of a great Savior. Trust in Christ as your great Savior who died for your sins and who was raised from the dead and received the forgiveness and, clean, and the cleansing that's in Christ. Those of us who are in Christ, 
brothers and sisters, insistently look and look and look and look and look and look to Christ. Let him be your vision, your best thought by day or by night. See in him the one who is your substitute. See in him the one who is your representative. See in him the one who is your hope and who is your confidence and who's your joy. Love how one person said, every time you look at yourself, take 10 glances at Jesus. Look at him and look at him and look at him and look at him. And by the Spirit of God, worship accordingly. When we gather together, Let's be cognizant of the fact that we are gathering before our God to listen and to offer sacrifices. The sacrifices are no longer animals, thank the Lord, but the sacrifices are now ourselves. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's pray. Father, simply thank you for your word. I pray that by your spirit, you would do work in our hearts to your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.